Content warning. This episode discusses serious and potentially triggering subjects, including family violence and animal abuse, as well as the recounting of real-life events. In this episode of The Every Lawyer, we take a closer look at the violence link in practice, a new report prepared for Humane Canada with funding from the Department of Justice Canada. The violence link in practice is an empirical analysis of the implications of the violence link for family justice professionals. But what exactly is the violence link? Broadly, it describes the intersection between animal abuse and a litany of violent criminal offenses, from bestiality, child, elder, and spousal abuse, to gang violence, human trafficking, and homicide. And family lawyers are often on the front lines. My name is Julia Tetrault-Provencher. Write to us anytime at podcasts at cba.org. This is The Every Lawyer. Presented by the Canadian Bar Association. So let's meet our guests today. Dr. Amy Fitzgerald, Criminology Professor at the University of Windsor. Amy is the authority on the violence link. She has been researching the connection between animal abuse and family violence for many years now. And she is the principal author of the violence link in practice. Jenny Mason has practiced family law for several years and is active in the PEI branch of the CBA as chair of the family law section, chair of the ADR section, and co-chair of the animal law section. Jenny has first-hand experience with the violence link in her practice. Carrie Thompson and Valerie Moncton, both from Humane Canada, they co-authored the report together with Amy and oversaw much of the research. Welcome to you all. I would start with Carrie and Valerie. Perhaps you could tell us more about a Humane Canada and how the violence link in practice came into being and the methodology behind it. Uh, well, I can start with that. So Humane Canada is formerly known as the Canadian Federation of Humane Societies. The Criminal Justice System Reform Program, which is the program that Valerie and I both work for, uh, works with key members of the criminal justice system to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and support legislative and policy amendments to bring about lasting change in terms of animal welfare. So that program includes the Canadian Violence Link Coalition, which includes a diverse group of law enforcement, academics, social work, anti-violence and victim service advocates, um, as well as the National Center for the Prosecution of Animal Cruelty, which we refer to as NCPAC, because that whole acronym is much easier to say. <laughs> and that is exclusively prosecutors and animal enforcement agents or people who work directly in the prosecution of animal cruelty cases in Canada. The overall goal of both of them is to bring about an accessible system of justice where victims are supported, families are kept together, and the vulnerability of animals and people is reduced. So family law came onto our radar with the amendments for the Divorce Act, which finally introduced a definition of family violence that included threats of harm and actual harm to animals. 
So when that amendment came into force in March of 2021, our program manager, Hannah Brown, submitted an application for the Justice Partnership and Innovation Program uh, last year through Justice Canada. So once we found out that we had been accepted and awarded a grant under that program. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. (laughs) So yeah, we had a little bit of time to put together a team for research. So that included uh, Amy, Jenny, Dr. Kendra Coulter from the Huron College at Western University and uh, Valerie and myself. And so we went about identifying groups that we wanted to reach out to, specifically those who've been obviously historically overlooked in the research, like Indigenous groups, Black women lawyers, rural and remote representatives, and the official language minority community groups. Yeah, I can just uh, speak to the methodology. Humane Canada has been doing violence-linked work for quite a while now, like Carrie said. Building this survey, we actually based it off of a previous survey that Humane Canada did that was looking at violence-linked awareness in 10 key sectors across Canada. Specifically, we took the questions that were geared towards prosecutors, and Carrie and I modified those before sending them off to Amy and Jenny, who did a lot of work modifying those questions and adding a lot of nuance. Then we also got input from our cultural advisors. Like Carrie said, we were lucky enough to work with a bunch of different groups to help inform those questions. Um, But yeah, the most difficult part of this whole project is that we had three months from when we figured out that we had received funding to when we had to have the survey and all the interviews concluded. So Carrie and I- Three months for all this. (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) Um, So Carrie and I spent a lot of time really trying to build out like who this was going to. So we spent a lot of time emailing uh, CDA members and law societies and other um, like law groups and also spending a lot of time collecting like direct email addresses for um, family lawyers and mediators across Canada so that we had like a, a big enough sample size to send this survey off to. And then of course, once we received all the survey responses back, we had a very short period of time to go through our survey responses and select only 12 interviewees out of a pool of over 300 responses. We ended up for the interviews, we ended up using purposive sampling, which basically means that um, we were looking for select traits. We wanted to get as diverse a sample as possible, as diverse perspectives as possible. Basically, we wanted to get a great spread of like violence like knowledge. So people that really didn't know anything before the survey and people that were quite knowledgeable. We wanted to make sure that we were talking to people all across Canada, that we were talking to people um, that spoke English and French as native languages. We also wanted to make sure we had Indigenous representation in our interviews. And that's just like a small, that's a small um, look at the all the things that we were looking for. So it's quite detailed in quite a short period of time. Yeah, this is impressive. Honestly, we can only tell our listeners to go and read it thoroughly. And what were the uh, some of the findings or some of the key elements that you, you could tell us a bit? Like, those are the key elements that you should keep in mind. We had 348 family law practitioners who participated through the survey, which was a a great sample size. And then, as Valerie mentioned, then we selected 12 interviewees from those who participated in the survey and indicated they'd be willing to participate in a follow-up interview. There were a lot of really interesting findings. Some of the, the most interesting was that the overwhelming majority of the survey participants, so 98%, reported being aware of family violence in their cases, which is 
extremely uh, an extremely large proportion. And additionally, when we ask the question about their awareness of animal maltreatment in their cases, 89% indicated they were aware of verified or suspected animal abuse in at least one of their cases since they'd been practicing. So also quite quite high. This is huge. Yeah, yeah and and they described um, in the interviews and and in some of the um, the written comments in the survey. Uh, you know, really troubling instances of pets being killed, abused, threatened, sold. So there, there was quite a bit of animal maltreatment. We also then followed up with a question about whether or not the participants were aware of a link between intimate partner violence and animal abuse. So understanding, okay, they've, you know, they've been exposed to a, a lot of both. So are they aware that there's a, a high rate of co-occurrence between the two that's been established in the academic literature? So one third said that they were unaware that there is a link between animal abuse and intimate partner violence. And we also asked them to rate their knowledge on a scale from zero to 10 of the link between animal abuse and intimate partner violence. And the most common response was five. So despite common exposure to intimate partner violence and animal maltreatment, there's not a lot of knowledge about the high rates of co-occurrence between the two and, you know, the academic literature pointing to the fact that animal maltreatment is associated with higher levels of control and behavior, more severe abuse for the humans, and also importantly, that it has a negative impact on help seeking. Research that I've conducted with my colleagues at the Animal and Interpersonal Abuse Research Group at the University of Windsor has found that over half of the, um, the shelter, domestic violence shelter clients that we surveyed reported that their pets were one reason that they delayed leaving their abusive relationship. So it's also a, a troubling finding to know that there's a, a fairly substantial proportion, at least in, in in that sample, and, and we're currently undertaking research with a larger national sample, reporting that they delayed leaving specifically because in most cases, they can't bring their pets with them to domestic violence shelters, which is something that I can you know, speak to more later on if, if you're interested in that aspect. This aspect of people being unable to leave because they cannot bring their pets with them, I think that's such an important aspect that I think is over. We, we don't we don't talk about it enough. You can jump in since you already introduced it. So unfortunately, still, the vast majority of shelters in Canada don't have programs available where you can bring your companion animal to the shelter with you. More common, but still relatively rare, are shelters that will make arrangements for foster care in the community. But that's still relatively uncommon. So we're currently at, at APARG conducting research looking at what do these programs offer and how does it impact clients that use them, but also staff members, individuals at shelters who might have, there might be animals on site, but they're not necessarily their pets. So that's research that we're currently working on. And in this study, we did find that a large proportion of respondents were keen on developing more programs at domestic violence shelters. That's something that was flagged. We also uh, provided them with some recommendations for them to evaluate in the survey. 
and um, the the some of the recommendations that were the most um, highly recommended by the participants included providing family law practitioners with training and resources regarding the violence link, which I'm hoping this report can be part of that effort. Educating the judiciary on the violence link was also another suggestion that was really well supported. Establishing guidelines for when to report animal abuse and how, especially given that such a large proportion of the participants reported being aware of animal abuse. Adding screening questions for the presence of companion animals to things like client intake forms and other family law forms that screen for intimate partner violence. Clarifying the relationship between ownership of companion animals and what to do when the violence link is present. So what to do if an abuser legally owns the animal but is using that animal as leverage against the other people um, in the home. And finally, amending protection order legislation to enable the explicit inclusion of, uh, of companion animals. Thank you. And thank you also for listing some of the recommendations. I think that's also something I wanted to, to know. And Jenny, uh, I understand that you were one of the legal practitioners. Uh, you were a consultant. So did you fill the survey as well? Sure, sure. So yes, I did fill out the survey. And I did also work with the team at a couple of points as a consultant. And so I've worked as a family law lawyer for several years. And through that, I gained an interest in the area of family violence, which is something that sadly I've encountered a lot through my work. I also have a personal interest in animal maltreatment. So given those two interests, I find the violence link to be really um, interesting and very important. So I've been encountering the violence link for years in my family law work, but unknowingly um, at the beginning in the sense that I didn't know about the actual link between family violence and animal abuse. It was a few years ago that I learned about the actual term violence link, and it was through Humane Canada's work. Um, I joined their Canadian Violence Link Coalition, which everybody on this recording is part of, and I co-founded an informal group on PEI that offers free presentations about violence link related topics once or twice a year. So from the get-go... You're quite an expert then. You're quite a... Oh! <laughs> I'm starting to learn more and more about it. Um, and so from the get-go, after learning about what the violence link is, I thought this seems really applicable to family law because we certainly do encounter family violence in our work and as uh, research like um, Amy's shows, the risk of family violence greatly increases after separation. And so it's typically after separation that we as family law lawyers are most involved with victims of family violence. So um, some examples of my encounters with the violence link in my practice are that when I worked at Family Legal Aid a few years ago, and this is when I wasn't aware yet of the violence link. I had a client, um, a woman who separated from her spouse years before, um, and she said that she and her children were victims of coercive and controlling violence by uh, from her spouse 
a now ex-spouse, and she believed her ex-spouse had killed their two dogs after she left because the dogs just, as she put it, they disappeared. And from her years of living with him, that's something she thought he was capable of doing. Um, I had another client, also a woman whose abusive ex-spouse kept the dog after they separated. The woman um, told me she wanted the dog to come live with her, in part because she was concerned about the dog's well-being and her ex's care because she'd seen him mistreating the dog when they were together. Um, like She'd seen him being very rough with the dog and throwing the dog across the room once when he was angry. So in that situation, when I asked the excess lawyer for the dog to come live with my client, the other lawyer said, no, we're, we're not going to deal with the dog. Um, this is the end of the conversation about the dog. Um, we're only talking about arrangement with the kids. And in that situation, after um, careful consideration, I encouraged my client to report her concerns to animal protection. Um, and I provided her with the contact information to do that. And the reason I said after careful consideration is because I think reporting suspected or actual animal abuse in a situation where there's been family violence can be really complicated. Like if an animal protection officer shows up at the abuse of ex-spouse's door saying there's been a report that they've been mistreating their dog, that's like going to make um, somebody quite frustrated and angry and in situations where there's been family violence I think the abusive partner might assume that it's been their ex-spouse that reported that and so it could escalate the violence um, against the person or against the animal so it's complicated and I can really relate to the family law professionals in the report who said that they think the violence link is really important and relevant but they aren't really sure how to address it without more guidance of course yeah and and I was hearing you talking is there also a question with with the vet sometimes we talk to medical personnel being like be aware of some of the signs of domestic violence on that for instance when a woman comes for for xyz reason for her own health and we tell them you know know the signs of some violence and Is it something that is also being discussed with a vet? vet I don't know. It's such a hard word to say, les veterinaires in French, but veterinary, vet, vet, <laughs> vet, veterinarians. Veterinarians. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. So veterinarians, is there any discussion of like training them, being aware of like this, this violence that can happen to a pet and, and know those signs? Is it some kind of discussions of like multi-sectorial discussion that we can have between lawyers, family lawyers and vet, or is that something that is happening yet? Well, that came up as one of the strategies sort of in cross-reporting. Amy may be able to speak a little bit more to this. She's obviously had more research experience in it. I know that we have a few vets on the Canadian Violence Link Coalition, and uh, they are quite adept in um, being able to identify intentional abuse. And I know that some of the vet colleges throughout the country sort of do training on spotting intentional abuse and what to do about it. But I don't know necessarily about the family violence aspect, if that's being incorporated into those programs or not. There's been a lot of growing awareness in the veterinary community about animal abuse and family violence and reporting, which is which is great. Part of the difficulty is that there's a concern among some vets that reporting might give them a negative reputation in the community. So that then clients might be less likely to take their their animals to that specific vet, you know, that's definitely been raised as, as a concern on, on their part. And as Carrie mentioned, cross-reporting was a strategy that we solicited feedback on. 
And what was interesting was that that strategy actually received the least amount of support. And the reason was, and the interviews really helped to uh, to clarify this, was that there was some concern that um, cross-reporting could be used to disadvantage certain groups. Right? That some we know that certain communities are over-policed, and so that this could be another extension of that. So there was a lot of caution urged, which which I think is you know important advice to heed that any cross-reporting strategies need to you know be aware that. Um, we don't want to just replicate forms of over-policing and disadvantage certain communities compared to others. Yeah, well, very interesting. And as Jenny, you were saying, I think it's all, there are so many things that you need to take into consideration. Obviously, uh, it's not a new phenomenon, but personally, the phrase violence link uh, was the first time I heard it with the report. I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one, especially since now I know the numbers when you said a third said I did not know about it. Therefore, I'm wondering, is Jenny's experience, what you just share, is it something that you would see is typical? Is it something that happens or not necessarily? Are there some other ways abusers will use their partners or the family pet as an instance of abuse in or coercive control? Yeah, un unfortunately, it is very common. That's what the, uh, the empirical research is pointing to. So one of the studies that I conducted where we, with my colleagues at, um, at APART, we surveyed clients in domestic violence shelters in Canada, 17 different shelters, and we asked them about animal maltreatment by their abuser, and uh, 89% reported some form of animal maltreatment okay. by their abuser. So it's, and that's consistent with uh, other studies in, in other countries. So it is, the, the research points to a, a fairly high co-occurrence between these two forms of, of abuse. And, Sadly, Jenny's stories are, are typical to what I've heard um, in my years of conducting research in this area. Um, you know, there's one that stuck with me where an abuser had poisoned the, uh, the family dog and the dog unfortunately died. And he would use the dog's name as a threat to the, the family members you know, and even leave voicemail messages saying, remember what happened to, you know, the, the dog, right, as a way of threatening, but without being, you know, explicit. Um, so unless you understood that underlying dynamic, you know, you, you might not, you might not really know what he was alluding to. So yeah, unfortunately, it is, it is fairly common. What's, One finding from the literature that's interesting that your your audience might be interested in is that it doesn't seem like these individuals who perpetrate animal abuse in the context of intimate partner violence are necessarily generalized animal abusers. Like they're they're not going around, you know, kicking every dog they see or anything like that. It's very targeted. They might even have pets of their own that they consider to be theirs that they're nice to. Right. And it's also important to keep in mind that the research has documented a very tight bond between companion animals and um, intimate partner violence victims and survivors. So in some of the research that I've conducted, my participants have told me that their companion animal is the one thing that kept them from 
um, from taking their own life, for instance, right? So this is a, it's a, it can be a very strong bond. And so it's something that we, we need to be cautious about and try to foster and, and keep them together as much as possible instead of, you know, just separating them and saying, okay, you know, the, the dog, the dog belongs to your, your spouse. So the dog, you know, goes, goes with them. It doesn't always have to be physical, right? Like the, we had this one interviewee that talked about an instance that she saw where um, an abuser had just, I think she had sold or like given away the pet while, like while the victim was away. And it was just kind of crazy because I think we, we think about abuse as being something so physical all the time, but it really, because animals are property, there's like just a whole a whole range of ways to abuse a partner and an animal that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even think of, and it really just emphasized the fact that you know if, if this person had had somewhere that they could have gone where they could have brought their animal, you know maybe this wouldn't have happened. And why do you see because animal is property? Because that's what my question was going there. So um, can you just explain a little bit what's the status of animal right now in uh, in Canada? Carrie, do you want to? Because you know more about the legal aspect. <laughs> So the legal status of animals in Canada is the same as property. So under the criminal code, cruelty to animals is under the same section as willful acts against, uh, you know, property. We weren't going to include it, and Amy may speak to this more in, um, in our questions because we didn't want to create a divisive environment where people were, you know, immediately on edge. We're not, we weren't looking to, you know, try to change the status of animals with this survey. But still, it came up quite a bit, so much in the survey responses, like the open-ended responses, that we had to include it as part of the interview questions. And, and Valerie, you were saying, so going back to that, you said, because animal uh, is property, that can lead to different, different type of violence. I mean, we don't, expect yeah i mean when you think of committing violence you would most of the time i think people think of committing it against other humans and then there are i mean there are certain protections for humans right that those don't extend to animals so you wouldn't i feel like there's just like an array of things that you could do to animals that you wouldn't even consider doing like you wouldn't be able to get away with with humans and that goes back to um the coercive aspect of family violence as well so coercion is a huge part of it that's the psychological part And that unfortunately often includes animal sexual abuse. So both of the partner and the, the children. And nobody wants to talk about animal sexual abuse. I get it. But it's one of those factors. So coercing a partner into engaging in sex acts with an animal as a means to degrade or dehumanize them and show their control is, is not uncommon. And it's also recorded oftentimes, especially in the modern age and put up on the internet and possibly used as blackmail to exert even more power over that person. And there's documented academic evidence where animal sexual abuse and sexual exploitation materials or animal pornography is often used as a grooming tool for child sexual abuse. So like when you touch the dog here, then you touch me here, I touch you there and see it's okay because you're touching the dog there, you can touch me there too. And it exploits the child's bond with their animal at its most disgusting level. Finally, because before um, the Supreme Court decision, RVDLW in 2016, where they left to the government to decide the definition of bestiality, they just used the narrow interpretation of actual penetration up until that time. So DLW is a case, it's a criminal case of a stepfather abusing his horrific 
years of abuse, including um, sex acts with an animal uh, of his stepdaughter. So he would force his stepdaughter into engaging in sex acts with uh, the family dog. Um, so the government's hand was forced in that they produced Bill C-84, which expanded the definition of bestiality from the act of just penetration to encompass all conduct of a sexual nature toward an animal. And I don't know if that's now we're seeing more bestiality cases come up because of that, or if there's more awareness around it. I don't know which came first. Yeah, because you're kind of putting also your finger on the, the taboo aspect of it that might also leads to why we have no maybe decision or jurisprudence, but I understand now that we have this. Is it like the only one? Is it, do we have a lot of cases about that or it's growing, you say, so maybe we'll have more in the future and your report maybe? It's, it's more growing in the criminal aspect. There was a major decision in November of 2021 um, from the Alberta Court of Appeal. It's R.V. Chen. The judge declares animals as sentient beings, which is very different from abusing an animal than it is like breaking a window and differentiating animals as in their own category and not necessarily as property. So they're capable of pain and capable of suffering. And some of that suffering is psychological as well. So there's been a lot of court cases since then that even outside of Alberta, that have referenced in favor of Chen. So pain and suffering of an animal has been included and considered in the sentencing decisions. And yeah, jurisprudence in, in terms of family law, um, we've got the Divorce Act and Jenny can probably speak more about that, that aspect of it. Sorry, I just threw it to Jenny with no warning at all. Sure. So we did a summary review of legislation in Canada, family law legislation specifically, um, that's applicable to the violence lake. So as Carrie mentioned, we have the Divorce Act amendments that were made in 2021. So the Divorce Act applies to married people. And the 2021 amendments, um, one of the reasons they're notable is that they really emphasize family violence, whereas before 2021, the Divorce Act was uh, silent on family violence. So one of those amendments is that the Divorce Act now includes an evidence-based definition of family violence, and it includes a non-exhaustive list of examples of family violence. One of the examples listed right in the Divorce Act is the threat of or actual killing or harming of an animal. So this is applicable to the violence link. And under the Divorce Act now, in making a parenting order or a contact order related to a child, the court has to do um, determine the best interest of the child by considering a number of factors. And one of those factors is to consider family violence and its impact um, and to help determine the impact of the Family Violence the Divorce Act includes a list of specific factors for the court to consider, like the nature and the seriousness of the violence. And also, under the amended act, when making a decision about parenting or contact, the court has to consider any proceeding or order that's potentially relevant to the child's best interest. And that could include a civil protection order related to family violence. So that was the divorce act and some of the ways that those 2021 amendments emphasize family violence. 
Um, every every province and territory also has their own family law legislation, which usually that applies to uh, non-married couples. And we're seeing that increasingly family, family violence is being emphasized in those statutes too. In our review, we saw that over half of the provincial and territorial family law statutes we scanned In over half of them, there's now a definition of family violence that includes harm or threats of harm to animals. In a couple of provinces, it's limited to pets, not to all animals. And uh, it was following those 2021 Divorce Act amendments that four provinces adopted a definition of family violence that basically mirrors um, the Divorce Act definition. Like in the Divorce Act, in the provinces and territorial legislation, um, in the provincial and territorial legislation, the meaning of family violence is especially relevant to decisions about parenting and contact related to children. And um, one last thing is that BC recently did something unique in Canada that's applicable to the violence link. They passed amendments to their Family Law Act this spring. They're not enforced yet, um, the ones related to pets, but these amendments provide some guidance for parties and the court when deciding how to address ownership and possession of pets. The new provisions will require the court to consider factors like whether there's been a history of family violence, the risk of family violence, and a spouse's cruelty or threat of cruelty toward an animal. And so BC is the first and currently only Canadian jurisdiction to have legislation that offers guidance specifically on how to resolve pet custody disputes. Where do you see overall the legislation right now? Because you, you did name some new aspects where the violence link was taken into consideration, but do you feel that we have enough? Is it enough? What do we need more? For instance, because I'm thinking, are animals included right now in protection orders? Or um, is it, you know, what, what would we need? What would be the, the change that we need right now, amendments that we need, or maybe even a new law to make sure that we really answer uh, the issues right now and that we, we have a good protection? One issue that we really need to be more aware of and that probably needs to be reflected in legislation or that the courts need more guidance for is the strong relationship between child abuse and animal abuse. When you think about it, both children and animals often lack voices, whether that's legal or just they can't talk yet in the case of children. There's also research that shows that children that are exposed to animal abuse, that witness animal abuse, can develop behavioral difficulties down the road. So yeah, it, it's it's a really important issue that there doesn't It was sort of like reflected in our interviews as well. Like sometimes there were discussions about, you know, the pets going with the children, but there doesn't seem to be enough awareness about that strong connection. And yeah, like when you think about it too, you know, people that are more likely to be violent with or neglectful of animals who are very vulnerable are going to be likely to be violent towards and neglectful of other vulnerable people as well, including children. And if I can just add, this is another area where the property status of animals comes in. I've conducted research on protection order statutes in the U.S. and 36 states now allow the inclusion of companion animals and protection orders explicitly. But part of the challenge is there are only some of those jurisdictions that allow the inclusion of animals that aren't legally owned by the individual who's petitioning for the protection order. So there there needs to be some leeway given, right? Because as as we mentioned, it's the property status of animals 
it's problematic in the sense that, you know, someone can be extremely harmful and threatening towards um, an animal that they legally own, right? Knowing that others in the family have formed relationships with that animal. Um, so we need to have a, a fairly broad definition of what animals can be included in, in the protection orders because of that property status issue. One of the problems with the legislation is it frequently lumps animals into the category of also and other property. So harming of animals or damaging other property. So Humane Canada has long been advocating for some strength and effectiveness in the criminal code in recognizing those links between crime against people and crimes against animals by including animals as an actual victim and adding animal cruelty as an aggravating feature of other offenses that go along with human offenses. The problem is they're often tried separately entirely or the animal offenses, the animal cruelty offenses are dismissed or ignored in favor of prosecution of the human crimes involved if, if they happen to be the same, which completely fails to recognize the fact that they are, they are so connected to each other. And is there anything that you think the bar association and law societies in the provinces should do regarding this matter? Um, I think any help that we can get to raise awareness of issues with animal abuse often lead to human violence or they're often connected with each other so that lawmakers and law enforcement agencies can begin to recognize it as a significant predictor, especially in cases of intimate partner and family violence. So there's been a number of you know reports that have indicated and made recommendations. The most recent one is the Mass Casualty Commission report that came out at the end of March, made recommendations on a national scale, including tracking perpetrators with a history of violence that includes coercive control, threatening and harming or killing pets or animals as part of their data collection, research and policy development. But the problem is, is that Stats Canada does not include stats on animal abuse except for in the bestiality portion of the criminal code when you're looking at crimes. So the statistics come from like gleaning from different studies like Amy does her, in her research or independently police associations do, that sort of thing. That's where we get our information from. And Raina, because you mentioned coercive control, and I know there's a lot of movement also in this area in Canada with the federal government talking about that, maybe criminalizing it. We don't want to have this discussion here about criminalization or no of coercive control. But what I'd like to know if, uh, do you know in the conversation, uh, we talk about the violence link? Is it, uh, is it mentioned when we talk about the definition of coercive control? And I know there's, no, no, I haven't heard. It's not mentioned right now. We've been pushing several... <laughs> We've been pushing hard to get it included, as mentioned, as a definition of coercive control. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But it's not it's not frequently mentioned in any of the proposed legislation as yet. But, you know, Parliament comes back in a couple weeks. So who knows? Exactly. No, exactly. And that's something on the table for sure. And just like at a side note, but I'm also part of the discussion, of course, in other feminist organizations. And I think that's definitely something that should be put into the discussion. Uh, so let's keep that in mind. But talking about education, <laughs> that's my segue for this. Dear every lawyer, uh, we would like to see the violence link in practice become a non-optional professional development webinar. Uh, I would love to have the Quebec Bar at having this and forcing all lawyers to have this, I would follow it for sure. And I think 
we should have different versions for judges, lawyers, the general public, and of course, pet purchasers. Do we have any plans going on that direction? Is it something in the pipeline? Well, it's something that we're always working on. But if individual organizations are interested, you can always contact me. We offer virtual violence link training for different organizations on how they can incorporate like awareness of the violence link in their own organizations and develop their own sort of tools, that kind of thing. Okay. And, and Jenny, <laughs> maybe that's something for the animal law section at the PEI brand. Would that be? Oh, I see your dog come in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yes, that's Ben. <laughs> Talking about that. Sure. Related to the violence link, we actually did uh, the CBA PEI animal law section have an event this past winter. Um, it was about an hour-long presentation from two Crown prosecutors about the violence link, but it was actually an event that was co-hosted by the animal law section, the family law section, and the criminal law section, which just goes to show the intersectionality of the violence link. And with judges, regarding judges, is there anything? It's it's being worked on. That's all I can say about that. Okay, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> and that, as I mentioned earlier, that's one of the areas that our participants really emphasized um, that they thought judicial training would be very helpful. As, as they pointed out, sometimes judges are more removed from the, you know, the everyday lives of individuals in their homes suffering from abuse and having companion animals so that that type of training might be helpful. And, and they also emphasized, which I would agree with, that it's important that any educational initiatives are grounded in empirical research. Now there's a substantial body of research to draw on um, so that we know, you know, it, sometimes it's not as straightforward as, as you might assume, right? Um, and some of the research points to some nuances. So I think those nuances are important to, uh, to include in training. I also um, just want to add in there that although, of course, it is really important to educate these specific groups, I want to emphasize that it really is the general public that needs to be aware of this connection, even... Yeah, even if it is harder to educate such a diffuse group, I think a lot of people, when they think of the violence thing, they think of the association between people that commit, like, very violent crimes and, like, uh, having a history with very violent, illegal animal violence. But it's not just that. The violence thing is really, like, this broad phenomenon that's about how violence and abusive behaviors against non-human animals can spill over to humans and then vice versa. And unfortunately, because animals are objectified, because they're seen as property and they have so few protections, yeah, like there's so many facets of our society that normalize this violence and they end up, animals end up by and large being the victims of that violence. So having a society that was like, that's better educated about the violence link, that's more aware of how prevalent it is, and that is on the lookout for that violent, abusive behavior would be, I think, a lot healthier overall. That's also the goal with this podcast, is that, of course, it's the every lawyer, it's it's aimed at legal professional, but I think the idea is also that, you know, share it, don't hesitate to talk about it, because I agree with you, Valerie, this, this is essential. We definitely highly recommend everyone to read the violence link in practice, but uh, Jenny, Amy, Carrie, Valerie, is there anything else you'd like to add that I forgot to ask? Well, registration opened um, just today, actually, that uh, for the Canadian Violence Link Conference for 2023, which is happening online November 8th and 9th, where you can learn more about 
the Violence Link in Practice and the Family Law Amendment from BC. Those are both sessions that are on the schedule, as well as a number of other sessions relating to the Violence Link and how it can impact different parts of uh, different sectors. Well, that's important. And so see you then in November. <laughs> that's it? Yes, in November, November 8th and 9th. Well, thank you very much to the four of you. It has been a pleasure. I don't know if anyone else wants to add something. The only other thing I would add is if you don't have a lot of time to read the full report, even though the full report is fantastic, we also produce two summary reports, one in English and one in French. Um, so those might be more digestible if you are short on time. Or you want to read in French. <laughs> yeah, if you want to practice. Or if you want also to share, you know, don't, you, know you want to scare your friends, you, you just send the, uh, the, this part. Yeah, but thank you and congratulations for all this work. We need people like you working on those kind of issues. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening to us today on The Every Lawyer. And yes, of course, we would love you to share this episode with friends and colleagues. But please remember that abusers often monitor their victims' online activity and correspondence. When sharing any information about abuse of any kind, it may be safer to do so verbally or in person. Don't wait to reach out for help when you need to. And have a beautiful day.